At Popular Mechanics, one of our jobs, along with trying out new bikes and testing hammers and flying drones around the office, is thinking about big ideas. Really futuristic stuff, like what cities will look like 25 years from now, or how to end terrorism, or just how many spies are there in the United States right now. This episode is all about big ideas, starting with an interview with Wim Hof, who is known as the Iceman for achieving feats like running a marathon in the snow in his bare feet, which is crazy, and climbing Mount Everest in shorts. Shorts. Wim has an app that mere mortals can use to be just like him, and we're going to try it out for a later episode. But first, you just have to listen to the guy. Talk about big ideas. Also on this episode, we talk about inventions that we all made up as a staff, interview a patent lawyer, and talk to editor Lara Sorokonich about a story she did on keeping schools safe from mass shooters. As always, I'm your host Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. Our special guest today is Wim Hof, who is a, I don't even know what to call you. You're just an amazing person who can resist crazy extreme temperatures and do incredible physical feats, such as climbing Mount Everest in shorts and running. <laughs> I think you ran a half marathon above the Arctic Circle on your bare feet. Is that as far as you've gone? On Mount Everest, base camp level, I run for eight hours barefoot. No. <laughs> in the snow, I gained a name. The Iceman doing 26 world records and then showing through science that whatever is written in the scientific books, historical books of medicine, that we are not able to get into the autonomic nervous system, now we can. And I showed it. Yeah, I was actually reading that they did an MRI of you while you were in extreme cold and it was like, you hacked into your stress response somehow and turned it on or turned on... Just some... by thought. How did you discover that you could do this? What was the first time? Anybody who is suffering from deep anxiety and or PTSD, and for those who are really innate, I mean, I saw a lot of homeless people in the U.S., and I think they are not treated well. Mm-hmm. So they went into the war, they served their country, they come back, and they don't know how to function in society anymore. And I just want to show with this Marine, Brett Carson, that mm. we have an ability to deal with that. By training in the most difficult of circumstances, you are then able to perform under the highest level of stress. This ability enables you to be the master of your own state. As someone who knows how it feels to be out of control of his mind. This is the most empowering feeling. I began to believe and understand how I could harness the wild, runaway horses that occasionally break free in my brain, stampede recklessly towards fear, anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I began to see how this method and he's talking about my method, the thing I developed. This method had the ability to free my soul from the incessant chatter of my own, at times, relentless mind. And I'm waiting for a new big study where I can show that people with the most severe stressful lives within their brain, like bipolar states of mind, to bring them back just in a couple of days. 
So what was the first time when where you personally tried this technique, even if you hadn't fully developed it yet? What was the first thing that gave you the idea that this could work? My wife jumped from eight stories down in 95, four children I had with her. Now, at that time, I began to go into the cold, severe cold. And the severe cold fills the mind, makes it peaceful. You cannot picnic when you go into ice water. <laughs> it is just going to be warm. Still, you just survive. Or you go deeper than your grief is able to nag you. And there, that I love. And I did it every day. And then, because you do it consciously, the neurological pathways begin to connect from the conscious will with the deepest of the brainstem. And that connection we have lost because we are always in this comfort zone behavior. And what I chose was going into not discomfort, but into the stillness of my mind. And I developed that. And now in the latest study, it shows that just by thinking, I'm able to make the skin temperature not going down while being exposed to ice-cold water. And it works on the biological cell stress, and we are able, at will, to connect with the deepest part of the brain, which is able to act upon the stress with hormonal secretion in a tailor-made sensor. I showed it to people randomly without experience in the cold within four days being able to get to the same in a scientific comparative study. I trained 18 people, showed after 16,000 people being in the same experiment, injected with a stressful bacteria that makes you sick for six hours. And it's a controlled experiment. It's a module, endotoxemia mm -hmm. module. Mm -hmm. And 16,134 people before, they could not make that bacteria's influence on our immune system, creating fever, uncontrolled shivering, and headaches, not make it go away. And then I trained people to do in the cold, without prior experience. And after four days, I thought, these guys are ready. They are in their innate capacity to battle stress. In this case, a bacteria will be injected and they will be able at will to counteract on the bacteria's influence on our physiology. And they 100%, all of them, did it within a quarter of an hour. If somebody wanted to learn the technique now, what should they expect? What are they going to be in for? There's a free app. On our website, you take it on, and as I always say, feeling is understanding. This Brett Carson, this Marine veteran, and he said, I've been looking everywhere, and I'm very skeptical. But within two minutes, three minutes, I was sold. I was done. Wow. This works if you do it. It's meditation, mindfulness. According to the professors who have been investigating in faith, seasoned practitioners of mindfulness, we have done all the studies and looked at the brain through brain scans, and what I've been showing in the brain scans 
mindfulness, even after long practice, are not able to activate the brain areas which I've been activating very robustly. And now they say, because we have seen what he did, we have found key components of the autonomous processes in the brain related to mood regulation. Expecting that we are able now to tackle bipolar, depression, anxiety, fear, trauma, PTSD, effectively, because we got into the deepest parts of the brain in which mindfulness or meditation is not able to get into. I love that you say that because I feel like a lot of people, when they have a new idea, they don't say... Right, they shy away from it. Yeah, they shy away from it. But you're like, science, come on, explain this. I'm going to download this app. I really am. I think we should do it. Well, you heard it here. That is Wim Hof. Thank you for joining us on the Most Useful Podcast ever. Great. Good. Good (laughs) work you guys do, too. So I congratulate you. Let's celebrate life. Yes, let's do it. (laughs) Thanks. So we're pretty smart here at Popular Mechanics. I don't know if you know that. So (laughs) So just setting us up for failure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, we do talk about inventions and we like inventiveness and we like people who try to do things DIY on their own. And so we're also always coming up with really stupid inventions. Are ourselves inventors. (laughs) I feel like none of us know if our inventions actually exist. So if you think that our inventions already exist or you've invented it yourself, please let us know. Right. Kevin has some cool ideas. What do you got? Well, okay. Like all these things just make me sound dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my big weaknesses and frustrations in life is folding fitted sheets. It's bothered I think me my entire life. Of many people, yeah. So I thought, okay, how can I make a sheet that can tighten around the mattress like a fitted sheet, but is easy to fold? And the other problem I have is that when I got a new mattress, it was really thick. So I got sheets that fit it. But then as I've had the mattress longer, and I guess it's gotten flatter over time, like now the sheets are too big. And so mm-hmm. they like bunch up, my feet get caught in them, whatever. So I thought, take a fitted sheet, and instead of sewing elastic into the corners or whatever, put in drawstrings. And the drawstrings just have like the little things so you can cinch them at the end. So you put the fitted sheet on, you pull the drawstring tight so it fits your mattress. And now it doesn't matter how thick or thin your mattress is because you just tighten it until it fits. And then when you're done, you need to wash it or whatever. You loosen the drawstring all the way. So now it's just a flat sheet again. Wash it. You fold it like a flat sheet. So easy. I have a question. Okay. Okay. So how are you going to get the corners tight? You just have one drawstring that runs all the way around. Okay. So it's still shaped like a square. So imagine you have a rectangle and the little tunnel that the drawstring goes through. I get that. I just mean, you know how now there's elastic, but there's also like corners, you know what I mean? That are sewn into the sheet. Is it still sewn the same and then it just has... I don't think it needs a corner because the only reason there's corners sewn on is to make sure it will fit correctly on the mattress, right? If you can make it fit by just tightening it and it bunches in the corners a little bit... I think it's going to bunch in the corners. But it's going to be flat on top. It'll just bunch around the edges of the mattress or underneath. It's underneath a comforter or a duvet, if you're fancy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I made fun of this idea when I first heard it in the office. But then I remember. I've been made fun of a lot. (laughs) But then the next time I was putting my sheets on my bed... This is my problem with fitted sheets, is I never get it oriented No correctly. one does. But with Kevin's invention, it would be clear which way it's supposed to go because you'd be able to see the shape of the rectangle. It could be a good idea. My other thing is that I've lost a lot of drawstrings to the hoodie gods, so I feared that I would lose the drawstring. But did you continue to lose them after you tied a knot in them? Yeah. The knot's never quite big enough, or it gets caught around the, um, what I don't know, with the little agitator in your washing machine, and then you're... Yeah, that would be my worry with these. 
Yeah, for sure that's a problem. But also, I think you don't have to tie the knot. I mean, you can just put a bead on the end or something that won't go through the grommet and the sheet. Maybe that could be part of the patent. Right. Yeah. The, bead. the bead's already included. I should patent this. A bead and a grommet. Yeah. I think you definitely need to include that part. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so my stupid idea, I don't even have kids, so I don't know if this is even a thing. Kids are always <laughs> making your house more dirty and leaving like Legos that you step on and all the stuff. And I feel like there should be children's toys that also clean the house. You know what I mean? Like they're pushing around. <laughs> okay, they're riding around on like one of those big wheels or something. But the big wheel, as they're pedaling, it's powering a little pedal-powered vacuum that is also vacuuming. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Shouldn't there be things like that? So here's my problem with that, my skeptical response. Mm-hmm. The last time I hung out with kids who were playing with toys, they just kept it in the same spot and mm. ran it back and forth over the same spots. So maybe that part of your carpet would get very, very clean, but they're not like approaching it like they're going to vacuum the room, right? Right, right. Okay, so here's what you do. You have to add an element where it makes it a game. Yeah. So like game you can have it. a toy that shows a race car track on it and that track traces your room. Right. Basically turn a child into a Roomba. That's what I want. <laughs> I want a yeah. child Roomba. Okay, Eleanor, you got any? All right. Mine is not as well thought out as your guys's, but I was watching someone on a city bike the other day, which are all over New York. And this guy was like zooming up 8th Avenue in a full suit and not wearing a helmet. And I get that a helmet like would not really go with what he had going on, but it just seems very unsafe to me, especially when there's like a bunch of cars everywhere. So I commuted by bike for a little bit after I graduated from college and I just had to carry my helmet with me everywhere because I left the bike locked up at the train station. And that was a pain because it was like not heavy, but it's bulky. You can't put it inside anything. Yeah. Bag. Like if I put it in my backpack, that was my entire backpack. It was just a haven for this helmet. So I was thinking that if it does not already exist, someone should make some sort of either disposable or recyclable or collapsible helmet that you can carry around with you that does not take up a cubic foot of space. I think that's a good idea. Well, I have news for you. Oh, no. So actually, somebody just won an award from James Dyson. It was a student from Parsons here in New York. So it's a helmet made of thick paper that's got like a coating to make it sort of waterproof. Mm -hmm. But it folds up into like a half moon shape. And when you unfold it, it's a helmet that goes on your head, but it's got like a honeycomb structure between all the sheets of paper. Mm-hmm. So the honeycomb shape makes it really strong. So it's like as strong as a foam helmet, but it can fold flat. So the idea is that you could either make them free or like sell them at kiosks. So like at the end of the city bike dock, you have a kiosk that vends them for a dollar or something because they're made of paper. Mm-hmm. And then you put it on, you ride across town and then you can just recycle it. That's a cool wow. idea. That is really I like cool. that. I don't know if they're actually available any place yet. I think this yeah. was like her prototype, but there's videos of her testing them with the testing machine where it just drops a hammer into something and it dents the paper, but the inside's That's crazy cool. That is really cool. That's awesome. Well, if you are listening and you have your own inventions and you want to tell us about them, please hit us up on Instagram or Twitter or email us, uh, Popular Mechanics, and we'd love to know what you got. So we have with us here today Alan Hale, who is a patent attorney in Orange County and the Bay Area of California. He called in today to talk to us after Kevin did a story about, he's done a couple of stories actually about patents and intellectual property law. Thank you, Alan, for calling in. No problem. Glad to be here. So Kevin, talk to me about patents and why you're into this and why you wanted to call Alan. Yeah, well, we decided to start doing like a monthly story where we'd look at somebody who had recently been granted a patent and talk to them about what was their invention, where did the idea come from, what's the process of actually patenting it like. 
And the first person that I talked to actually was one of Alan's clients and Alan put me in touch with him. But now that I've talked to a few people, I've realized that I've learned a lot about inventors and having ideas, but I still don't know a lot about the patent process. I think that's something that a lot of people would probably be interested in finding out more about. Alan, first of all, first question, how do you get into something like this? Like, how did you choose this? Well, like I think it's pretty common to be a patent attorney. You have to have some sort of technical background, college degree that is an engineering discipline or something related. And like many of us, we got real deep into our engineering disciplines and we thought, hey, you know, what are some other things we could possibly do with this background other than just going and being an engineer, which is a great profession as well. And one of the main options for engineers who want to try something else is patent law, kind of the overlap, the nexus of engineering and sciences and law. And very few people do it relatively, so the job prospects are relatively good compared to other attorneys and engineers, for that matter. So if you have a patent, what does that mean exactly? That means that you are the only person that can make a thing or that has the idea or that understands how something works? Or like, what rights does it give you? Yeah, it's actually a government-sanctioned monopoly. We have antitrust laws in this country that are designed to prevent monopolies from existing and to foster competition and all that. And patents kind of go the other way. The deal that the government will make with you is in exchange for you telling the world about this idea of yours, we will give you a limited time where you can have a monopoly over that idea to the extent that you really are the first person to come up with it. And so it's a right to exclude other people from doing what you've invented. In the process of doing this, if somebody's going to patent something, what do they come to you with and what do they need? Okay, so just to give you some context, the vast majority of the work in my practice and for most patent attorneys out there is working with big corporations that are churning out inventions and patents with some amount of volume and regularity. Those are savvy clients, and they know exactly what they're looking for, and they even have patent attorneys working in-house, and so it's a very well-oiled machine. In the other situation where we have what we call smaller entities, solo inventors, or companies that maybe aren't as savvy or don't have internal personnel to direct this sort of operation, the first thing that people want to know typically is, hey, I've got this idea. Is it patentable? Mm-hmm. And that's a very tricky question, both legally and practically, for me to really engage them on because, as you can imagine, that's not a straightforward question. And we spend years and lots of money arguing whether something is patentable with the Patent and Trademark Office. So a lot of times people will approach me, and they're really approaching me at the wrong time because that's not really where I come in. There's a lot of companies out there, and there's even resources for people who want to do it on their own for searching whether their idea is novel. That's not what I do because I'm too expensive to waste my time looking through databases for materials, and there's a whole industry designed to meet these needs. Right. Do you know what the resources are that are available for people like that? I mean, anything that you could name where people could go look that kind of thing up? One of the best resources is Google Patents. Some of your listeners may not be aware that that exists, but that's a good resource. There's also many comparable online platforms that basically just draw from the public patent databases in the U.S. and then also internationally. You can look through those resources as well, but there's a resource I use a lot called Free Patents Online. And Google Patents, they'll allow you to search by search terms and different queries and kind of see what's out there. When you're working with the patent office to try to get a patent, the vast majority of the material that they're looking at is actually from patent publication. So technically, the real question when trying to decide if you're the first one to do something, it's not, has this been disclosed in a patent publication? Has it been disclosed anywhere at all? But 
typically most of the information that's useful is found in patent applications. Right. So once you get to that point, if you determine that this isn't something that's been disclosed previously, I talk to these people who have these ideas and they talk like normal people and they describe in regular English what their idea was. But when you read a patent, it's written in like a very particular kind of English that doesn't sound like the way anybody would talk or describe something. And I'm wondering what the purpose of that is. But then also, how do you translate somebody's idea who's just kind of a layman who's had an idea and they've thought about it a lot? Maybe they built a prototype. So they know how it works. How do you translate that into what actually works as a legal filing to get a patent? There is no requirement that the patent filing be chock full of legalese like you'll typically find in there. You're right, there is a very particular way we describe things. The reason we describe things in a funny way is our motivation is to describe something as open-ended as possible, as broadly as possible, and to not limit the concepts that we're disclosing in any way. So if I had invented a table, I wouldn't want to file an application that says, I invented a table and a table has four legs, because hmm. I wouldn't want to give the impression to people that the inventive concept that I came up with was limited to a very strict and particular implementation. I want people to think I invented every type of table having any number <laughs> of legs and any surface and any material and everything. One of the first things we do when someone says, hey, here's what I invented, and they give us some material to look over. The first thing that we'll do if we're trying to prep it for filing is delete all of the trouble words from the material, you know, words that would say something like, this table must have four legs, this table is this or is that, because we want to say, well, maybe it is or maybe it's more than that. So do most people not need a lawyer when they are filing a patent? Technically, no. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. People do come to me and sometimes, honestly, so the patent process is very expensive. There's a number of reasons for that. The government charges extensive fees for filing and for getting a patent through the system. Then also, the big problem is to hire a patent attorney. You know, like I said, these are attorneys that not only went through law school and have legal degrees, they also went through an engineering degree, at least one. And so you can imagine by the time you get out of that process, you're uh, pretty expensive. <laughs> Technically, there are a lot of different cheaper ways you can do it. The problem with it is there's so many aspects of a patent, a quality aspect that just would be impossible to really become competent in as a layperson. And so while you can file something that ever push came to shove and you ever wanted to enforce this patent and you hadn't had it really crafted artfully by a patent attorney and it was involved in a litigation, it would get eaten alive because there would be so many holes that could be poked in it if it didn't have all the kind of bells and whistles that we attach to a patent filing. So, yes, you can do it cheaply. You could do it in a half hour with a couple hundred bucks, but that would be you get what you pay for, I guess, is the moral of the story there. So you said earlier that a patent is a government-sanctioned monopoly for a certain period of time. How long does a patent last for? 20 years from when you file it. It takes a period of time for you to actually get granted a patent in the event that you are successful. That's another aspect that people don't really realize is how long the process takes. You know, I'll have people come to me and we'll file a patent application. And by the time it actually gets through the system, they've totally moved on or something has happened where maybe they're not even developing that product or whatever the case may be. But it can take years to come to completion. So. Wow. And that's just slowness on the government side or why? Yeah, primarily, you know, like most government branches, although the patent office is actually pretty good, relatively speaking, every interaction with the patent office takes kind of months on either side of it. 
sometimes that's good. You know, sometimes people aren't in any rush to start paying more fees and get the ball rolling because once you're on file, sometimes all people want to say is that they're patent pending. And that can be useful. As well. Oh, that's interesting. That makes sense why people say patent pending. Yeah, and sometimes people don't have a great expectation that they will get the patent granted. And I'll say, well, you know, we'll look at what information we have and we say, well, you know, the probability is not good that we'll get this through. For their purposes, they're interested in drumming up investment and things of that nature. And when you're patent pending, as far as the world knows, you're some period of time away from being granted a very strong and powerful patent. So patent pending is such an ambiguous state that in some instances it accomplishes what a patent would because if you think about it, if I want to knock somebody's idea off, well, how much money do I want to invest in going down that road if I think that they might be granted a patent imminently? Uh-huh. So I think I read once that Apple had patented the angle of the curve on the edge of the iPhone or something like that. What can you patent and what can you not patent? I think what you might be referring to is what we call a design patent. There's two basic types of patents that I would deal with in my line of work would be what we call a utility patent and a design patent. A utility patent is what people mostly think of when they think of a patent. That is, you invented a useful item and it has this new inventive feature and you're patenting the useful new feature of the item. Sometimes there's ornamental aspects to a product that are useful and innovative in and of themselves. So, for example, if I came up with a, an aesthetic feature that was integrated with the functionality of the item, then I can file a patent on that design. Those are much easier to get, and it's actually more akin to what you would think of with copyright protection. Copyright typically is what people would rely on to protect more artistic works and things of that nature. Design patents are kind of like a middle ground between your utility patent and your copyright protection. They're much easier to get. I know that Apple and some of these other companies in the smartphone business are actively involved in design patents with respect to their products. How many patents do you do? How many are you working on today? I'll probably pick up three or four, you know, and do something with them. But uh, like I said, the process takes a while. Patent preparation, so the first stage would be, you know, actually writing the application. And that can take a few months to do. Then we'll file the application, and then you have some intermediate stages where the patent office will send us the rejection of the application <laughs> on some basis, and then we'll fight back and say, we think it's patentable for these reasons. And so there's kind of different stages that we're engaging with the patent filing. So I'll kind of pick up a handful of cases on any given day and have something to do on them. Well, cool. Well, thank you for taking a break from that to call us, and good luck with all your patent stuff. Yeah, this is great. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you, guys. All right. Bye. It's time again for your favorite segment, Abstract Facts. Abstract Facts. I'm excited for this one. All right. This one really hurt my brain. (laughs) That's what they're supposed to do. That's the thing about abstract thought. Yeah, exactly. So, I I mean, I don't know. We'll just see where it goes. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. Okay, so the philosophical definition of abstraction is basically just you're not thinking about objects or things you can really see. You're thinking about the idea of something. So examples of abstract concepts are like time, space, love. You were really quick with that one, Kevin. Something you want to share? It's what connects the world. Kevin has weird ideas about time that we should not discuss on this podcast because they lead to arguments. Okay, so one thing that I learned about time is that 
there wasn't standardized time until like the 1850s. Yeah, it was the railroads. It, it came around with the railroads because everyone just based their time on when it was noon where they were. And of course, that's different depending on where you are in the world. As we've become more, <laughs> as we become more consolidated in space, we've had less time zones. Or I mean, as we've been able to travel further through space, we've consolidated time zones. Yeah. So now there should be one because we're global communicators. That's all I'm saying. That's my explanation. Let's get back to the abstract facts. This is really living up to my expectations for the abstract facts segment. So this is boggling my mind. One thing that made me feel both better and worse is that children begin to understand abstract concepts between 18 and 24 months. So wow, that's, that's young. so early. Yeah. And so there was a study that was done with shapes specifically. And that's when they start to understand that when you say triangle, you're not just talking about one specific triangle. You're talking about something with three points. But another interesting abstract fact that I learned is actually about abstract art, which is, as we know, it's a type of art where you're not actually depicting what you see in real life or necessarily even a human form or like an animal or landscape or something like that. But you just have shapes and colors and forms and like that is supposed to evoke some sort of feeling or thought. So you know that there's sort of a cliche saying often people who don't like abstract art will say, oh, like my four-year-old could have done that. Like it's just paint on a canvas and it doesn't make any sense. So in 2015, there was a study funded by Boston College, which is my alma mater, to find out if people could actually tell the difference between abstract art by real artists and then a superficially similar work by either a child or an animal, like a monkey or an elephant. An animal. <laughs> and they found out that even kids as young as four, so literally a four-year-old, can distinguish between what's real art and what's Really? Quote, That's super yeah. cool. That is That's impressive. Cool I'm going to say that the next time somebody, because somebody will say that to you probably. Yeah. Like, and so, well, yeah, then show it to your four-year-old and they'll say it sucks. Yeah. They'll be like, nope. Yeah. That's not art. So I couldn't read the whole article because it was behind a paywall. But from the <laughs> abstract, I found, <laughs> I found out that this was interesting to me. When the kids were asked which one was better, they always chose the artists. But when they were asked which one they liked more, it was sort of a toss up. Depending on how much they oh. liked yeah. the elephant. And there was one quote where like some kid was like, oh, that's really good for an elephant. which i think anything is pretty good for an elephant but so those are my abstract facts and that's been abstract facts (laughs) i love it so usually this podcast is pretty light-hearted but we actually covered a pretty serious topic in the magazine recently lara sorakonich went to a number of schools where there have been school shootings and put together a package on how to make schools safer from a physical perspective so we have lara here Hello. And we also have Eleanor here. Yeah. So what did you do for the story just to start off with? So basically, I went into this with the question, how do you make a school safer while at the same time not making it seem like a prison? Mm -hmm. And for obvious reasons, schools that have had shootings have thought about this extensively in a way that maybe schools that haven't don't. So I went out to Littleton, Colorado. They had a shooting at Arapahoe High School back in 2013 where One student died and the shooter killed himself. And then I went up to Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, which obviously was the site of that tragic shooting a few years ago where I believe it was 24 first graders died. So, yeah, I went out to those schools and then I also just got in contact with a number of different administrators and nonprofits and educators around the country who are really focusing on school safety, particularly from this point of view of What can you do right now with your school building to make it safer immediately? Right. And I was speaking to our editors about this. We kind of figured out that 
this is a solution that you can do this school year that you could start talking about at your school meeting tomorrow, mm-hmm. as opposed to things like gun control or mental health, which are both big parts of this. Those are going to take a long time to figure out. They're going to take a long time to really get any movement on those fronts. And in the meantime, what can you do to make your school safer right now? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. I mean, that's a great idea. What conclusions did you come to? One of the most interesting things that I realized during this process was that a lot of the solutions are really low tech and they don't cost a ton of money. Mm -hmm. That's good. So the, yeah, the director of security up in Newtown, the first thing that he said to me was schools should make sure that their doors are locked during the day. And then they should also establish an anonymous tip line in case a student sees something that's going on that they're concerned about. So those are sort of really not that complicated, not that expensive solutions. You can subscribe to anonymous tip line services. I don't know how much they cost, but it's sort of a a management fee and it's not installing anything big. Mm -hmm. You just set it up and go from there. And then obviously keeping your doors locked during the day, that's just a policy and you know, you might want to reevaluate your locks on certain doors, but for the most part, that's just saying to teachers and students, these doors are locked. You're not going in and out of them during the day and establishing one entrance point into your building mm-hmm. so that people can't go in the back door and then cause a problem from there. Mm-hmm. Some other things that are pretty low tech having locks on your classroom doors. The Sandy Hook Commission, which was a research project that happened after Sandy Hook happened found out that a shooter has never breached a locked door within a school. Oh, wow. A locked classroom door. Mm -hmm. So what a lot of people recommend is having a lock on your door that a teacher can just push a button from the inside and close the door or, you know, latch it from the inside Mm -hmm. instead of taking a set of keys out into the hallway locking it manually from the outside and then going back in, which in an emergency is not a really convenient solution. So making sure your classrooms have locks on the doors. At Sandy Hook, they actually kept their doors locked during the day, but the shooter shot through the glass. They had a big, beautiful glass entryway because you want your schools to feel very welcoming. Mm -hmm. But he was able to just smash through the glass and walk into the school. So it doesn't matter if your doors are locked during the day, if someone can just smash through the glass and get in. Right. The new Sandy Hook school has ballistics grade doors, which are heavy and they're intimidating and I wouldn't say that that's necessary for every school to have, Mm -hmm. but a lot of schools have bought film. You can buy a shatter-resistant film that won't necessarily keep a bullet from going through the door, but it won't make the glass just shatter to the ground. It'll take a lot of effort for somebody to break through the film on the door Mm -hmm. and get inside. Okay. Which also goes to say a lot of the technologies that they have and they recommend, it's not about outsmarting a shooter or... They're not these covert things that, in theory, if a shooter knew about them, they would be able to abuse. It's more so about keeping the bad people out and everybody else safe within and slowing them down as much as possible. Mm -hmm. School shootings and any mass shootings are usually between five and ten minutes in total. Right. That's about how long it takes the police to respond and stop them. So the longer you can keep someone at your doorstep and away from all of your children and teachers Mm -hmm. and administrators inside the better off you are. And then also a number of recommendations have to do with communication. So if something bad is happening in the gymnasium, how do those students in the gymnasium let you know? And then how do you know let the rest of the school know what's going on from there and then let police know as quickly as possible? Right. 
So some schools use these radios that you can buy. They're pretty cheap and certain teachers and administrators have them with them all the time. And the local police department also knows what channel to tune into if they need to hear what's going on at a school. So that's an easy solution. Having a telephone in every classroom that every child knows how to dial is a really simple solution that allows anybody in emergency to call the front office and then the front office to let everybody know what's going on. That's good. And then establishing a clear and direct connection with your local police department is also really important. I actually read during my research in the Washington Post that what happened at Parkland was the administrators within the school were connected to a local police department, but the kids who were in the building where the shooting was happening, when they called on cell phones, they were connected to a different police department. Oh, wow. So what happened was the administrators didn't know what was going on and neither did the police department that they were speaking to. Mm-hmm. The kids in the classrooms who were calling on their cell phones were talking to a different police department. Wow. So, you know, everybody hears about that security guard that didn't go in the building and stop the shooter the police department that he was talking to had no idea that there was a shooter in the building. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that was a really poignant example of why it's important to have set up a direct line of communication with the police. And, you know, in an ideal situation, the shooter doesn't, doesn't even get in. But if they did, students would pick up that phone and it would go to the police department and then the police department could communicate to the other wings of the school. So there are lots of different layers to this approach, and not everybody needs every technology. It's a lot of getting ready for any kind of emergency in your school is understanding the community that you're in and what specific problems your community is facing. And a lot of the technologies that we learned about actually help out with a lot of other problems. So when I was out in Littleton, the director of security out there, Guy Grace, told me that their anonymous tip line helped them interfere with, I believe, six suicide attempts in oh, the past wow. school year because kids knew their friends were posting stuff on social media. Uh-huh. They knew immediately to call or text the tip line, and people on their security team are checking it all the time. There's someone in their security office 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And somebody got that notification and they were able to intervene in the moment before students hurt themselves. Right. So it's very helpful for that. Some schools that we spoke to said that they had a significant decline in vandalism because when you have cameras and monitoring, kids get caught and then it's a deterrent from there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not this... Yes, you want to be prepared for a shooting, but school security and school security technology also helps for tons of other problems within a school community. Right. And yeah, it's obviously a very big problem to tackle, but it has a lot of other good benefits that are far beyond just worrying about that one in a million chance that a shooter might come attack your school. Right. Well, great. Well, thank you for looking into it. And these are some great tips that people who are listeners, if you're concerned and you have a school board near you uh, or a community meeting and you want to bring any of these ideas, please do that or check out our latest issue. That's our September issue, right? Yeah, you can find it in the September issue. We also made this PDF of the article available for free online Oh, great! to download. So if you want to download that, print it out and bring it to your school board meeting, you can go to popularmechanics.com slash safer hyphen schools and you'll find all of the stories and the PDF version there. Cool. Thank you. For this week's testing table, we have a drink. 
This is a Russian drink that I found downstairs <laughs> in the subway station beneath our office. Okay. Um, <laughs> like at a store, not at like... a store. Yeah, I'm the like pierogi place. Yes. Yeah, so there's like this little Russian dumpling place in. It's called Turnstile. It's these little shops that are in the subway station beneath our office. It's on the corner of Central Park in New York City. And everyone who works there appears to be Russian. And they sell this stuff called Voss. In English, it's K-V-A-S-S. And I asked the guy how to pronounce it. And he said Voss. You don't, the K is kind of silent. So, and he, he had an accent. So I think that he knows what he's talking about. It's made out of bread, apparently, and it is a soft drink that is fermented. So it's kind of like a kombucha. So I don't, I don't know if huh. it's like a health drink or a soft drink or what it is. Well, according to Wikipedia, Voss is especially popular in most of the North Slavic countries, but not the Czech Republic or Slovakia. So although the introduction of Western soft drinks such as Coca-Cola and Pepsi had reduced the commercial sale of Voss in Russia, Voss has been more recently marketed as a patriotic alternative to cola, sparking a Voss revival. <laughs> For example, the Russian company Nikola, which by coincidence the name sounds like not cola in Russian, has promoted its brand of Voss with an advertising campaign emphasizing anti-colonization. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's, that's clever. That's Isn't very it? clever. So this also says that it's made by the natural fermentation of bread such as wheat, rye, or barley, and sometimes flavored using fruit, berries, raisins, or birch sap. Well, so, read, read us the ingredients, Eleanor. You yeah, started what, what is, Yeah, yeah what so it looks like we have the rye variety because this is filtered water and then rye breadcrumbs which consists of more filtered water, rye flour, whole wheat flour, sourdough, blackstrap molasses, sugar, salt, and coriander. And then there's also barley malt and more sugar. So it's going to taste like sweet bread, kind of? I, I've I think, read that it tastes kind of yeah. like beer. So I guess that makes sense because it's just like fermented beer. Well, let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. Wow. wow, Kevin, that's a hefty pour. Kevin thinks we're really going to like this. Well, <laughs> it's just because there's two bottles. I, was just... I would like half that much, please. <laughs> you know, like you're going to like the fermented bread drink? No. Oh, you're, gonna, I'll take the you're giving pour. me the big one? I'll, I'll try it. It smells one. just like beer. Does yeah, it? It smells mm -hmm. like yeast. Whoa, it does smell like yeast. Do we know what the alcohol content is? <laughs> it's uh, can not you, on the can bottle. Can you read Cyrillic? I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> not bad. That's not bad. I don't think I would ever choose it. No, I also don't know how to describe it. Yeah, weird. It's like... It's kind of like if root beer were more beer. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It's like root beer and beer at the same time. Yeah, because my nose expects like a really dark, yeasty beer. Yeah. But then it tastes like I got it from a soda fountain. It tastes kind of like brown sugar, but then, but beer. <laughs> Very strange. I would totally, well, you're probably not allowed to drink fermented things when you're pregnant. I was like, I'd totally drink this when I was pregnant. If mm -hmm. I if you couldn't add beer, that'd be great. Oh, but yeah. I don't know what the rules about fermented I things like are. I think it's low enough. I think when you first taste it, like the first taste you taste is very beery. And then after that, you taste the sweetness of it and that tastes like root beer. Yeah. I don't hate this. I, no, I like I it. I didn't know what I was going to think, but I like it. Did you find out from the Wikipedia page how you make this? So there's a really ugly picture which just, Kevin like, sees boil? the <laughs> Um, the pictures are really bad looking. Okay. Commercial glass, Voss, sorry, especially less expensive varieties, which this is, is occasionally made like many other soft drinks using sugar, carbonated water, malt extract, and flavorings. Better brands, often made by beer rather than soft drink manufacturers, usually use a variation of the traditional process, which is, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> which is something. This Wikipedia article could use your help. I know. Well, there's a picture of it being fermented in a jar. So I think it's similar to kombucha like a sourdough starter. right yeah you put some yeast in it and then you let it eat stuff it eats the sugar that's how yeast makes things right yeah 
So, yeah, so this is, I mean, I, I should look at the receipt for how much I paid for this. It's imported from Canada, so I think it was like $3 or something. Would you buy this? <laughs> <laughs> for a novelty, I would. If I were thirsting for some kind of soda, I don't think I would be like, let me choose Kvass over Coca-Cola. Okay. Mm-hmm. Eleanor and Kevin? I do think this feels healthier than Coke. It doesn't taste as chemically. Probably mm-hmm. there are no chemicals or preservatives in it. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I feel the same way. I, I like a good one Coke in the summer, you know, when it's like really hot. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, I really want a Coke. But then you just can feel it disintegrating your insides. And this may be less. Yeah. yeah. The, the beer to sugar thing is very hard to get used to. Mm-hmm. Like I'm still a- Sweet beer. But I also really like malty beers. My favorite kinds of beers are like brown ales and porters that have sugar in them. Yeah. I think it's pretty good. I don't drink soda very often anymore. And so since I'm not getting it that often, I can see myself, if I'm going to buy five sodas a year, maybe one of them will be Voss instead now. Yeah? Yeah. I do think it's good. Yeah. I don't know if I buy into this one in particular being fermented. You think it it's maybe not? It doesn't taste particularly fermented to me. Mm-hmm. It's... Just, it could just be like an imported soft drink, like a flavored. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you guys think it tastes fermented? I don't know. Would it have to say that it was carbonated through other means if it was? Oh, um, like carbonated like water? An, or, I don't know, or like CO2. Is that going on the ingredients list? Is there a way to know? Because it's obviously carbonated. Right. It is obviously carbonated. I don't know. I don't know either. Also, also it's, it's, it's like Canadian rules. I was just going to say that. <laughs> Who knows? This will probably be subject to a tariff. Mm. So at the new prices, I probably wouldn't buy it. So that's true. Drink it while you can. Yeah. Canadian boss. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening. 